Welcome to the Beeson Podcast, coming to you from Beeson Divinity School on the campus of Samford University in Birmingham, Alabama. Now your host, Timothy George. Welcome to today's Beeson Podcast. Today, my guest is Dr. Gerald Bray. Gerald Bray has taught at Beeson Divinity School for 25 years. This is his 25th anniversary. He is a world-renowned scholar, author of many, many books and articles and essays. I couldn't begin to name them all. Let me just mention a few of them. He actually edited the very first volume in the Reformation Commentary on Scripture. And before that, he edited three volumes in the Ancient Christian Commentary on Scripture. So he's very interested in the history of biblical interpretation, has a book by that title, uh, in exegesis, but also in theology. He is the author of both a systematic theology uh, called God is Love and a historical theology titled God Has Spoken, both from Crossway. So we're talking here to a, a person who has made a tremendous contribution to the knowledge of the history of the church, its theology, its spirituality. And we're going to talk today about two very recent books he's also been involved in that illuminate the English Reformation. So welcome, Gerald, to the Beeson Podcast. Well, thank you very much. Now, the book, uh, there are two of them. Uh, let me begin with the one that is most recent, published 2018 by James Clark and Company in Cambridge, England. It's called The Institution of a Christian Man. Would you tell us what this book is about and why we should even be aware of it? Oh, yes. Well, um, the title comes from the first of three books uh, which belong to the series, you know, which go together. And I had to choose a title for the, the collection as a whole. So I thought we'll start at the beginning um, and we'll fit the others in. I mean, each of the three has a slightly different title. Uh, one is a, a necessary and, and profitable doctrine, you know, another uh, this kind of thing. But it's very minor and I thought they could all go under the same original title because this they are developments. The later th- two books are developments of this initial one. What it is, the institution of a Christian man, is really the first post-Reformation theology book to be produced in England. Mm-hmm. Um, it came about as a result of uh, conversations between the Church of England and Martin Luther and his uh, colleagues in Wittenberg. Um, in 1536, there was a, a delegation that went to Wittenberg to try to form an alliance between uh, Luther and, and the newly independent uh, English church. That's a complicated story, but basically they came back to England with something called the Ten Articles, which are ten points of doctrine, which were approved by the church in in 1536. And the institution of a Christian man is an attempt to create a a kind of comprehensive theology on the basis of the Ten Articles. What they did was they took the standard medieval approach um, that is to say that to become a, a clergyman in the Middle Ages, you had to uh, show a, a deep knowledge uh, of three things, uh, the Ten Commandments, the, um, the Lord's Prayer, uh, and the Apostles' Creed. 
And it goes back to St. Augustine, doesn't yes, it, that structure? Yes, that's right. That's right. And then in the middle, the high Middle Ages, they added the sacraments to that list of three. And everybody had to, had to know them. They had to be able to expound them uh, and, and so on in order to get ordained. And so because of this, the institution of a Christian man take, takes these basic documents and says what the, the, the candidates for ordination ought to say about them, mm. how they should understand yeah. them. It's, a, it's, it's really a textbook. So yeah. it is a way of doing theological education in yes, this that's right. time of transition between Catholicism and what becomes Anglicanism. That's right. I mean, it's, a, it, it, it's the first step in that direction. Now, of course, because of this, it represents what we would today think of as a Protestant position on, on a number of things, because otherwise there would be very little point in writing one at all. Mm-hmm. But uh, I suppose the surprising thing from a modern point of view is that while there's a strong concentration on justification by faith uh, alone and also on purgatory uh, and the question of prayers for the dead, which figure very strongly in the Ten Articles. Other, and on other things where you might imagine they would have changed things, they don't. They keep the seven sacraments, for example. They keep what could be regarded as a doctrine of transubstantiation um, uh, in the Eucharist, although that, you know, that could be questioned. But basically, if you believed in transubstantiation, you wouldn't have any problem with it. And uh, and also something like the perpetual virginity of the Virgin Mary, which is, mm. to our minds, rather surprising. But it just shows that this uh, they didn't do that. I don't. I don't think deliberately, uh, because they believed it. You know, as opposed to not believing it, but simply because it wasn't an issue. It mm. hadn't come up mm-hmm. um, in debate, and so they carried on. I mean, in in that respect, quite conservative. And so they include the Ave Maria also. Yes, well, and for the same reason, because the Ave Maria, you know, Hail Mary, full of grace. This was something that a lot of people knew, and so they threw it in because. Um, you know, it was a widely used and well-known prayer. I think this raises a question that we're dealing here with a time of transition between, yes. uh, so things are not entirely mature at this point, we might say, or full, fully developed in terms of English Reformation theology. Would that be accurate? Well, that's certainly accurate from our modern point of view, because we can see the the development over a long period of time. Whether that's how it was perceived at the time is, of course, a different matter altogether. I mean, the bishop's book, as we call it, the Institution of a Christian Man, is called the bishop's book, is known as this, because it was signed off by the bishops uh, of the Church of England. Every single one of them attached his signature to, to it. What that means is very hard to say because um, presumably the bulk of the, the, the work itself was uh, done by only two or three people. It couldn't have been done by all uh, 27 or 26 bishops that there were. Mm-hmm. I mean, it wouldn't work. The others just signed on to it. And again, why they signed on to it is is unknown. I mean, some of them probably didn't really like it very much, but, you know, it was easier and safer to do that than to do anything else. So they so they signed on. But if you look at the bishop's book by itself, you find that it's it's actually not very well written, not very well composed. Um, it's clearly been thrown together. You know that, for example, uh, the, the Lord's Prayer and the Ten Commandments, they'll talk about 
them. And then there are extensive notes. And in some cases, the notes seem to be longer than the original text. Mm. And that's probably because somebody just, you know, didn't do proper job of editing. And you get, you get quite a lot of things like that. There's also a relative dearth of biblical quotation, which is surprising. Uh, I mean, I know that the Lord's Prayer is in the Bible and the Ten Commandments and so on, so in that sense, biblical. But um, cross-referencing with the Bible and so on, um, this is this is not what you would expect, uh, you know, not as extensive as you would expect. So, in this sense, yes, it's a, it, it, you know, it appears to us as a as a transition. Now, it went to the king, to Henry VIII who commissioned it in a way uh, at the beginning or or at least had allowed it to be produced and he got uh, at least two copies of it which he looked at at different times and uh, made comments quite extensive comments some of those comments are grammatical you know simply correcting mistakes and so on but quite a number of them are are theological and the general drift of Henry's theological remarks is that he thought the institution of a Christian man was too Lutheran, too mm-hmm. Protestant. He wanted to rein back. And what is interesting is that Archbishop Cranmer, in a separate document, wrote an extensive uh, refutation of the king's objections. That was a dangerous thing to do. Well, very dangerous, <laughs> yes. And it was a very dangerous thing to do, but it shows that their relationship was such that he could do that and get away with it. Now, of course, uh, you know, most of the king's recommendations were accepted. I mean, you couldn't, you could only get away with so much. There are one or two that weren't. But what happened and what is interesting is that the revised text, uh, which we call the king's book because the king basically said it's got to be revised, was revised in a more conservative direction. But a lot of the things that he objected to in the bishop's book were just left out so that the degree to which the king influenced the revision was less than than might appear if you just look at the bishop's book as it was because he didn't restructure it. He just commented on what was there. Um, and then various bishops took it away and reconfigured the whole thing and in the process dropped whole sections, you know, including, of course, the king's remarks, making them redundant, really, in those, uh, in those instances. So we can follow this process. You see, this is a very interesting thing because we have mm-hmm. uh, the manuscripts uh, which have survived and with the king's own notations in them. It's very interesting to see how, how he did that. And the king's book, which came out six years later, 1543, 1543 mm-hmm. represents a much more conservative approach to, to things, covers the same ground. But on cert- on some things, it says much the same sort of thing. I mean, yeah. there's only so much that you can say about the Ten Commandments, for example, and th- th- that wasn't really a controversial subject. So you get those things which are basically just repeated. But on justification by faith, for example, the article's completely rewritten. And things like that. I mean, anything that would stand out as being particularly Protestant is uh, is, is either omitted or re- rewritten to remove that kind of um, implication um, in the King's Book. Well, the King's Book died a death uh, when the king died. I mean, it didn't really survive him. Mm, he died in 1547. So it survived only about three or four years as a functioning text. 
and it kind of lay lay dormant uh, for a long time. But then under Queen Mary, uh, the, the Marian reaction, the, the restoration of Catholicism, Edmund Bonner, who had been involved in the, in the King's Book, uh, originally Bishop of London, uh, decided to, to do a similar thing for his own diocese, a London diocese. He couldn't really do it for anybody else because he was Bishop of London. And what he did was he took the King's Book and basically rewrote it and rewrote it uh, much more extensively than the, the revisers of the King's Book had done uh, initially to reflect uh, what was now, of course, seen as traditional Catholic doctrine. But by the time he did that, of course, 1555, the dividing lines between Protestant and Catholic were becoming much clearer. And so therefore, it's much more obvious. He, he, he picks up, up various points and says, you know, the heretics, meaning the Protestants, are wrong about this and that and the other. And, and it's more, much more polemical. Mm -hmm. However, you know, for, from our point of view, what is interesting is that Bishop Bonner's book, as we call it, has far more biblical references and quotations mm -hmm. than either the king's book or the bishop's book. So what we realized from this is that scripture had become the battleground mm -hmm. and Bonner had to defend his positions very much from scripture yeah. in a way that the earlier writers didn't, didn't think was necessary. So that's interesting. When we think about biblical commentary in the time of the Reformation, we always think, of course, of the great Protestant Calvin, the great exegete, mm -hmm. and so forth, Bootser. But there were a significant number of Catholics who were also very scholarly, mm -hmm. reading scripture, writing commentaries on them. Mm -hmm. uh, and so it's, it's, it's only uh, understandable that the Bible would become the battleground then yeah. in the middle part of that century. Let me shift because I, I want to give a, a good chunk of time to another very important work. Uh, in some ways, I would say maybe more more influential book mm -hmm. in the English Reformation, even than the Institution of a Christian Man, and that's the Book of Homilies. Mm -hmm. You yourself brought out a critical edition of this very important book a couple of years ago, 2015. Tell us about the Book of Homilies, its context, and what it was intended to do. Right. Well, first of all, there are two books of homilies which uh, are officially recognized by the Church of England to this day. The books of homilies are formal and uh, authoritative in a way that the institution of a Christian man is not uh, and never and never will be. I mean, the institution is, is a, a historical curiosity, really. But the homilies are, uh, are still uh, part of the Church's official doctrine today. So they're very important. Um, there's a third book, which was again produced by Bishop Bonner and bound together with his revision of the institution of the Christian man. This is where the two things come together in Bonner's revision, because he produces a book of homilies first and uh, and then the the uh, revised version of the King's book and puts them together. They're connected in another way because the first book of homilies is, is relatively short. There are 12 uh, of them. And we can only identify the authors of seven of them. Four of them were, were written by Archbishop Cranmer. At least we believe they were. 
Uh, one of them was written by um, a, a Protestantizing bishop, or not bishop, but a member of the church called Thomas Bacon. That was the, the homily on adultery. Um, but two others, the one on original sin and the one on love, interestingly enough, were written by very conservative pro-Catholic bishops initially. And we only know that because Bishop Bonner recycled them virtually unchanged in his book of homilies. So this is an important uh, source, you see, from that point of view. Now, what was the purpose of these? Well, the plan was to provide, again, a teaching medium for the, the general public. The institution of a Christian man was in a sense designed for the public, you know, the general public, but it was more specifically geared, uh, of course, to people training for ordination. Whereas the books of homilies were meant to be read uh, from the pulpit. Now, this is a, a complicated issue because ever since 1407, the English clergy could not preach from a pulpit unless they had a preaching license. Mm. And one of the things that the Reformation tried to do was issue licenses only to qualified people. And a qualified person was basically somebody who had a university degree. But these people were a minority, people who had actually studied theology. Um, most people who ended up being ordained, you know, had got into the ministry by other means. I mean, either because of who they knew or because they'd been in a monastery or whatever it was. But, you know, they didn't really have theological education. So what do you do with them? They have to preach because this is preaching is a central thing in the Reformation. The only thing to do is to provide them with sermons uh, that they can preach. And this is what they were supposed to do, that the, the homilies were designed as theological instruction for church members, for lay people, uh, you know, to be preached from the pulpits. And anybody who, who didn't have a, a preaching license, uh, in a, you know, who couldn't, was not allowed to preach in their own words, this is what they had to do. This is what they had to use. Mm -hmm. Now, whether people who did have a preaching license, people who could have preached in their own words, used the homilies or not, uh, this is harder to tell. Uh, we, we, we have lack of evidence, you see. But certainly before very long, uh, the homilies were also being used as uh, theological education. So everybody knew them. I mean, they would have read them at some time, and presumably most people at some point or other would have heard them. Now, the initial 12, as I say, were written probably around 1542, around the same time as the King's book was being produced. But they were not published at that time because uh, Henry VIII was moving in a more conservative direction and wasn't really interested in this. I mean, they, the homilies were too sort of radical, too Protestant for his liking. But they were published six months after his death. And this is how, well, we know, of course, that they were planned before. And they must have been written before because six months, you know, to produce 12 homilies, this is too short a time. So they were probably sitting around in somebody's drawer and they, you know, they got pulled out and there they were. They were just printed. There was a plan at that time to produce a second book and there were a list of topics given. Uh, that would be covered. But that net book, second book didn't appear until 1563 because other things intervened. You know, of course, that, by that time, Queen Elizabeth is on the throne. That's right, yes, yes. And it appears that, that nobody had 
got round to actually writing anything um, until the 1560s because Bishop John Jewell of Salisbury is credited with having written them. We don't really know that for sure, but we we kind of guess that, that you know that they're well written and he was a great writer. Yeah, that we know. and and interested <laughs> in the subject and so on. And he must have written some of them at least. But but you know we're not entirely sure. Well, some of them are taken from other sources that we do know. So so Jewell, whatever he did, was a compiler as much mm. as an actual. Now the initial twelve were meant to be preached, uh, and they are not particularly long. I mean, you could get through them in half an hour. Uh, preaching. The first one, and one of the best ones, is on Scripture, the use of Scripture. And it is probably the best short introduction to Scripture in the English language, still. He doesn't, Cranmer doesn't go into things like inerrancy of Scripture or anything like that. I mean, it, it, it's not really that sort of approach. It's more a devotional thing, how to use the scriptures, how to, how to grow in Christ by reading the scriptures. Mm -hmm. And there's really nothing quite like that in such a short and succinct form. And I have actually, I haven't ever preached that myself, but I have heard other people do so. And for something that was written in the 1540s, uh, it can still be read today and understood mm. with very little difficulty at all. Uh, you know, I mean, it's, it's, it's very fresh and that of course shows that it, it wasn't written in a highfalutin academic style, but you know, for communication, it's very good. And then there are the homilies on salvation uh, and so on. And in the articles of religion, the 42 articles initially and then the 39, the homilies are referred to, uh, and it is thanks to that, really, that they have the status that they have, because the articles, of course, are a brief digest of doctrines. But there will be, from time to time, you get a notice saying, for further information about this, read the homily on justification or something. So, you know, you go and, 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 and do that. So they, they're sort of brought in in that way. Now, the second book of homilies is less purely theological, uh, you might say it's lo much longer uh, than the first book, about three times longer. But it tends to be more to do with practicalities like you know, how to look after the church building, having reverence in church, getting rid of, of uh, images in church. You know, there's a, there's a lot on that. Um, uh, prayer and uh, t setting aside time for prayer. Uh, and then it goes through the Christian year, Christmas, Easter, Pentecost and so on. Um, there's a very interesting sermon on the Holy Spirit, which is unusual uh, in the 16th century, but there it is. And then it comes uh, down to at the end towards things like civil obedience, uh, because that was a big thing, of course. Uh, and the last of them uh, was about uh, rebellion, and of course the evil of rebelling against the against the authorities. But because the second, the, the homilies in the second book are so much longer than the ones in the first, they're mostly subdivided and they would be read uh, in portions. A portion would be read every Sunday. That was the idea. And 
there was a pattern. You see, it was meant to be followed, and so that you could you could read through the homilies in a year, uh, you know, following the the uh, the pattern laid down, and and that's what people were expected to do. Well, you've done a wonderful service for the church and for the academy, and giving us these critical editions of both the Institution of a Christian Man published in 2018 by James Clark in Britain, and the earlier Books of Homilies, a critical edition, 2015. Uh, Thank you, Gerald, for this conversation and for your labor, loving labor, in producing these classic documents that enrich our life and understanding of the English Reformation. Thank you very much. You've been listening to the Beeson Podcast with host Timothy George. You can subscribe to the Beeson Podcast at our website, BeesonDivinity.com. Beeson Divinity School is an interdenominational evangelical divinity school training men and women in the service of Jesus Christ. We pray that this podcast will aid and encourage your work, and we hope you will listen to each upcoming edition of the Beeson Podcast.